If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Titus chapter 2, and as we get started on Titus, or before we get started on Titus chapter 2, let me follow up with a couple words of encouragement after what uh, JT said. Uh, Well, he's not here now. Our uh, rhythm guitarist extraordinaire, Kevin Merritt, who was back here, I think he had a yellow shirt on or something like that. Uh, He and his wife, oh, there, okay, yellow in the shirt, gray and yellow. Uh, Kevin and his wife, Alex, just had their fourth child uh, over this week, Eli Wells. Is that right? Eli Wells, yep. Congratulations to them. (laughs) Mark would have everyone know that that's another one of his grandchildren, just in case you didn't pick up on that. And then also, uh, Mike Maldonado, one of our elders here, uh, his oldest daughter, Miranda, just had her first baby, Roman, Roman Jude. Okay, Roman Jude. So you want to congratulate them as well. There's a little bit of Maldonado resemblance in the picture of uh, little Roman. We all have our crosses to bear. But you can, you can still encourage, encourage Mike. I like the fact that I get to call him Grandpa now, so that's good. Titus chapter 2. We are going to be in verses 9 and 10. But we'll do what we have done the last couple weeks, which is to remind us of the flow of Paul's thinking. We will read 2-1. That sort of serves as a heading for this section. We'll read 2-1, and then I'll jump straight down from 2-1 to 2-9 and read verses 9 and 10, reminding ourselves that what Paul is trying to do here is to instruct Titus, and by extension, the people that Titus will serve, will pastor, that the doctrine that we teach ultimately ought to bear fruit in the way that we live. The Christian truth cultivates godliness. So in 2.1, Paul says, as for you, speak the things which are fitting or which are appropriate for sound doctrine. In verse 9, He says, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, or we probably want to say, but showing all good faithfulness, so that, or in order that, they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. This is God's Word to us. Let's pray. Father, give us the ability to carefully read this passage of Scripture, to be able to understand, to see it, to hear it in its own unique historical context, and yet not in a way that would minimize or diminish its timelessness for us. In any of those areas that may seem uncomfortable or unsettling for us, we ask that you would continue to give us the grace to bow the knee in faith, submitting to the authority of Your Word, trusting that because You are good, all that You say is good. We ask that Your Holy Spirit would help us to understand, help us to believe, help us to love the things that we find here, and that it would change the way that we live on a daily basis. In Your Son's name we ask for this. Amen. So this, in verses 1 through 10, Paul is giving instructions for godly living. He has addressed older men. He's addressed older women and younger women. He's addressed younger, uh, younger men. And now in verses 9 and 10, he's addressing slaves. Uh, if you have uh, a handout or an outline that was uh, on the tables at the head of the aisle, you notice that there are two main points. And I want to say something about the wording of these two points and in the instructions for godly living, we don't try to soften the word to say something like servant or employee. Instructions for godly living, the address is to slaves. The two points that we're going to try to hit, numbers one and two, I framed it this way, Christian slaves ought to be different. And number two, Christian slaves display the beauty of God's gospel. Let me tell you why I'm doing that. One, because as we'll see here in a moment, I think it more, it more accurately reflects 
the context, the setting that Paul is in, that Titus is in, that these Christians on Crete are in at the time of this writing. And two, I think that by keeping to this language as perhaps unsettling or jarring as what it is, it has a way of bringing to bear on us the reality of the transforming power of the gospel of God. That is to simply say this, if Paul can address people who are slaves and say, this is how you ought to live, it is very difficult for me to find a way to wiggle out of this when I think about a lesser life setting like employment. So I found that in my time going through this passage of Scripture for the week, thinking and meditating on it, it actually was very humbling, very convicting, very meaningful for me to think specifically, explicitly about the fact that Paul is addressing people who were slaves. And to say, Merit, if this is what God's Word is to people who were enslaved, how much more should you be willing and eager to adopt this same kind of lifestyle yourself? Now, having said that, let me, let's do some historical setting, some, some context setting right up front here, because oftentimes when we hear people refer to slavery, of course, we think of slavery in terms of our American history and our American culture, or we're thinking through modern Western eyes, and we're thinking of a, a certain way that slavery acts. And the truth of the matter is, is that slavery in the Greco-Roman world, or more specifically, during the days of the Roman Empire in which the, the New Testament writers are living, that there were both similarities and dissimilarities to what we think of when we think of modern-day slavery. And so it, it actually is very complex, and it's, it's very difficult to do sort of a one-size-fits-all description of what a slave would be experiencing or what he could expect if that was his lot in life. So let me just run through some things to, just to sort of show you how complex this is, but then hopefully to come back and say, and yet in light of this complexity, here's what, at, at a bare minimum, here's what we ought to be able to think or consider when we're taking a passage like this and trying to apply it to ourselves. Let me start with some dissimilarities. One, probably the, the biggest difference in slavery in the Roman Empire versus the slavery, say, that we are familiar with in terms of American history or Western European history in the 16, 17, 1800s is that Roman slavery was not based on skin color or ethnicity. Anyone could be a slave in the Roman Empire. You could become a slave if your people or nation was conquered by the Roman Empire. They could, they could take you as sort of spoils of war, and you could become a slave for a Roman citizen somewhere in the empire. You could be born to parents who were already slaves and therefore be, become a slave yourself. You could sell yourself into slavery if you were in particular financial difficulties. There really was no way, in other words, to look at someone and just by appearance or dialect or accent or anything like that to be able to determine who was and who was not a slave based on where they came from, what their ethnicity was or anything like that. Anyone could be a slave. You could even be a slave, you could become a slave even if originally in life you had started off as a free person. Again, because of the fact that some people actually found themselves in financial ruin and the only way to be able to find the opportunity to sustain themselves and perhaps their family was to in sell themselves as a slave to a wealthy owner, it is entirely possible that you were born into this world. You and your family, your wife, your kids were all free, and yet because of events beyond your control, you became a slave. So very different in that respect from what we are used to thinking about. 
Another way that slavery in the Roman Empire was very different from slavery in our world, it was actually possible for slaves to be better educated than their owners. One of the reasons that, uh, that a wealthy person wanted to have a slave or two or 10 or 20 or 100, depending on how much, uh, how much well-being they had, how much means was at their disposal, was because they could assign to their household slaves certain jobs that they either did not want to attend to, didn't have the time to oversee, or just didn't have the capacity to deal with. So it was very possible then for a slave in your house to be something like a CPA or to have some sort of medical training or to know how to manage huge tracts of land for agricultural development. It was also possible that a slave owner could actually send his slave to be educated for a particular skill that would benefit the house and would benefit his household. So in certain respects then, just because you were a slave didn't mean that you were necessarily ignorant or even stupid or uneducated. In fact, you could be far more educated than the person who owned you. Third, because of the way that slavery worked in the Roman Empire, it was possible for slaves to actually have an income in their slavery. They, they could be paid, they could, uh, they could earn wages, they could keep their wages, and they could actually accumulate wealth, including property. And many people who existed as slaves in the Roman Empire could reasonably expect to be freed, become a freed man or a freed woman by the time they were 30. So slavery was not necessarily permanently binding or irrevocable if you found yourself living as a slave. In all of those ways, Roman slavery was very different than the slavery that we're used to hearing about in our history books. However, the fact of the matter is, even though there were some unique differences between Roman slavery and the slavery that we're familiar with in American history, there were also some striking similarities. One is that, as is so often the case when you're talking about slavery, Whoever owned the slave had complete and total rights over that slave. There was nothing that was off limits for the person who owned the slave. They could abuse them, they could beat them, they could burn them for punishment, they could burn them at the stake to execute them, they could have them crucified as a form of punishment, whatever the owner wanted to do to his slaves, he could do. Physical violence against a slave was not only allowed in some respects, it was expected. It was considered right and proper. That's just the way that things were. That's the order of things. And during the time at which Paul and Peter and some of the other New Testament apostles are writing, there was no law preventing an owner, a master, from selling his slaves into the sex trade. Or if he didn't want to sell his slave into the sex trade, he could re retain ownership of his slave, but he could prostitute them out. The slave had no legal protections, had no recourse, had no way to change the situation that they were in. This was it. So what's striking to me then when we come to this passage in verses 9 and 10 is that when Paul turns his attention to Christians in Titus' care, under Titus' shepherding, Christians who are slaves he starts by saying in verse 9, if you're a Christian who happens to be a slave, you, you need to submit to your master. Notice Paul does not say, you submit to your master if he's a good guy or if she is kind and generous. It's just a blanket statement. A Christian slave ought to submit to his or her master. 
Let me just, just to balance this out or to broaden this out, we should say a little bit more. If you hold your place here and you go to 1 Peter chapter 2, this becomes even more clear or more explicit when Peter addresses slaves. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, hold your place in Titus 2 and turn over to 1 Peter 2 and listen to what Peter says. First Peter 2.18, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Or you might say, who are twisted, who are cruel. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Now, let me be very clear. This is not to be understood as the Bible condoning slavery. Rather, what the New Testament authors are doing, like Paul and Peter, they are, they are recognizing the situation and the plight of many of the Christians that they are shepherding, that they are trying to teach. They know that if approximately 16 to 20 percent of the Roman population, of the population in the Roman Empire, were slaves, that's historical estimates, you're probably going to have a good 10 or 20 percent of your church congregation who are slaves as well. How do you address them? And this is the way in Titus 2 that Paul is addressing them. So this is, not the, this is not the New Testament condoning slavery. This is the New Testament addressing people who happen to find themselves in slavery. What does it mean to be a Christian even when you are living in an unjust setting? Let me also say by way of application, this does not mean, and nothing that we say this morning should be interpreted or understood as me or anyone else in church leadership or this congregation saying, that because these are the instructions submitting to what potentially could have been cruel masters, that because that's the instruction given to Christian slaves during the first century, that that means that, when, that today Christians cannot take advantage of the legal protections and the rights that are afforded us under our rule of law. That's not what we're saying. We ought to be thankful that in today's society, in the culture in which we live, that the law gives workers, gives people, gives weak and vulnerable people protections that they can take advantage of. And let me go one step further and say, if you're here this morning and if in any way you have ever been exploited or abused or anything like that, not only will this church support and encourage you, we will do everything we can to help you find the protection that you need. We will not write it off and say, well, the Christian thing to do is just submit and to bear up under it. That is evil, wicked, and wrong. Does everyone hear me? Having said that then, probably the closest thing that we can do to, to appropriate what Paul is saying here to Titus is to take the instructions given to Christian slaves and in our day and time appropriate in some sort of way as to see a connection with perhaps employment. What, what does life look like for a Christian who is under the authority of someone not in their home or someone in the workplace or something like that. I think that's the, the direction or the helpful way that we can look at a passage like this. But once again, because Paul is not talking only to upstanding, uh, equitable employees and employers, but he's actually talking with slaves, we ought to feel a certain amount of right conviction if we, in 2022, with all of the legal protections that we have in the workplace and in society around us, if we can't bear to muster up 
this sort of basic, low-bar conduct in the workplace, something is not right. So what does Paul say to slaves? What by extension or by application would Paul say to anyone who is an employee? By the way, let me, let me stop right here and say again to young people who are here in this room, if you don't happen to be working right now, right, you might want to think that one of the ways that you can make application here is by the way that you relate to those who are in authority over you, namely your parents. I know what some of you teens are thinking, oh, that's not going to be hard. My mom and dad, they're taskmasters, right? Okay, fine and good. But if this kind of instruction, if this kind of exhortation can be given to slaves, certainly sons and daughters can take this to heart as well in responding to those who are in authority over them. To you adults, though, I'm going to speak primarily to those of you or to those of us who know what it's like to have to make our way through the world responding to people outside of our normal sphere of life who happen to be in positions of authority over that, over us, primarily in the workplace, but you can make other applications as well, perhaps with different aspects of government and so on and so forth. The first thing that Paul says in verse 9, encourage or tell slaves to submit to their own masters in everything. This does not mean that they have to submit or acquiesce or give in to evil and wicked schemes or plans. It does mean, however, that even if the owner, the master, the boss, even if he is evil and wicked, you still, as a Christian, ought to recognize his authority or her authority over you and ought to structure your life and your response accordingly. Christian, here it is in, in, the, in, in just a very simple, basic way. It really does not matter if your parents or your boss or your coworker or anything like that, it really does not matter if they are a jerk or not. If they are in a position of responsibility that is over you, if there is an authority structure that is there, the right, godly, Christian response is to recognize that authority structure and to bring yourself up under it. Full stop. There's a dangerous trend an unhealthy trend in our culture today, and it seeps into the church as well, right? Because we, we swim six out of the seven days in the culture that's around us and in the society, right? Where the mindset has, is more and more being developed or being adopted that the, the kind of response that I give to those in authority is determined on whether or not they deserve it or whether or not they earn it. That's not what the Scriptures say. Again, that does not mean that you have to support evil. That does not mean that you have to give approval to things that violate the Word of God. That does not mean that your conscientious obedience to your Creator and King takes a backseat to your obedience to your employer or those in authority over you. But it does mean that at the very least, whether they are a likable person or not, has little to nothing to do with what the Lord expects of you when you enter into the workplace. You submit, you recognize that there is an authority structure here, and even if you don't happen to like it, even if you don't happen to like the person, this is what you've been called to do as a follower of Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes in and he gives in four ways what appear to be descriptions or examples of ways in which this submission to the person in authority over you, the submission of a slave to his master or an employee to an employer, some of the ways that this is going to work itself out and maybe work itself out in ways that are particularly challenging for people who find themselves as slaves or as employees. So he gives two positive things that slaves ought to do, 
And he gives two negative things that slaves ought not to do. So after saying, submit to your masters in everything, what's the very first thing that he says? Verse 9. To be what? Be, be well-pleasing. I think part of what Paul is getting after here when he tells slaves to be well-pleasing is that it's not enough to simply acknowledge someone's authority over you, to simply grit your teeth, carry out the instructions or do the orders in a bare minimum fashion, but that as a Christian, not only should you recognize the authority of the one who's been placed over you, you ought to be not just passively, if we can say it that way, passively or acquiescing to their authority, you ought to be actively looking for ways to please that person in authority over you. That means, at least in part, that the right kind of submission or the full kind of submission that Christ is calling His people to exhibit in the workplace is one in which if an employer gives you as an employee an instruction or an order to carry out, not only will you take that and do it, but you will do it in such a way that you are thinking first and foremost, what is the way that he or she would like me to do it? What is going to be most satisfying to them as I carry out and execute this assignment? Right? Anyone can go through the motions. Anyone can take an order and on the inside just be in turmoil, right? Furious at what it is that this jerk of a boss has just given me to do and can do the bare minimum amount of work so that technically on paper, well, I did what I was asked to do. Well, okay, you did what you were asked to do, but did you do it in such a way that your, your, your boss is going to be pleased with what it is that you did? What, what, what is the quality of work that you performed when you were carrying out your task? Do you see? Submit to those in authority over you, but do so in a way where you're not just looking for the lowest common denominator, but you are actively seeking to please the person who's in authority over you, whether they are kind or unkind, whether they are a jerk or whether they're a saint, whether you think you owe it to them or not. A Christian slave, a Christian employee seeks to please the one that they are taking instructions from. Don't talk back. Let me pause for a moment here. Young people, because for you, if you may not be working right now, your closest way to connect with this passage might be in the parent-child relationship. Let me say very plainly and very clearly, what God expects of you, what it means for you if you're going to follow Christ and follow Him well, is that if you are submitting to the leadership and authority of your parents, when your parents give you an instruction or tell you something to do, A, you do it, but B, you do it without giving them grief and arguing with them about what it is they've just told you to do. Adults, for those of you who are in the workplace, or for those of you who are dealing with other people who are in an authoritative role over you, it may be that the sort of working relationship or working environment that you're in is such that you have the opportunity to actually say something back when your, your boss, or your manager, your supervisor says something. I, I don't know what the work environment is for you, right? We got people that talk back to pastors all the time. But we're not bosses, so it doesn't work. All right, you may have the opportunity to do that. If you have the opportunity to do that, let me challenge you by saying that's not what Christ calls you to do, to be argumentative with the person that you're taking instructions and that you're taking orders from. 
Let me take it one step further. Some of you may be in a position, your work environment is such that you would never dream of talking back to your boss or your manager or your supervisor because you know if you uttered one contrary word, you would be packing your stuff and you'd be out on the curb before you could even draw your next breath. You wouldn't dare talk back. That's not a problem for me. But in the Psalms, one of the, in, I think it's Psalm 15, in asking who it is that can ascend the hill of the Lord, what kind of person it is that the Lord approves of and, and welcomes into His house to worship in His presence. One of the things, one of the characteristics is stated to be he speaks truth in his heart. Which means that the real holiness that God is driving his people toward is not merely a question of whether or not you can bite your tongue and not say anything stupid when you get that objectionable instruction. The real purity and the real holiness that God is calling His people to, the real Christ-likeness, is not just whether or not you refrain from uttering that word verbally. The real question is, is your heart being purified in such a way that you don't even entertain that inner dialogue with yourself? Anyone want to claim that they've mastered that yet? Right? You go home at the end of the day, and you are just stewing over what it is that was told to you or what it is that was said about you, and you think, oh, if the situation were different, I would give him or I would give her a piece of my mind. And then you just rehearse that over and over and over again. You talk back in your head, in your heart, you're speaking against, you're talking back over and over again. Or you rehearse that argument or that debate over and over again. And you rehearse it in such a way, let's be honest enough, when, when you rehearse that disagreement that you had with your boss, when you go back home and you review it in your mind, who wins in the replay? I've never lost in a replay. <laughs> never. All fine and good. Listen, at a bare minimum, at a bare minimum, a follower of Christ ought to imitate the one who knew how to hold his tongue even when he was being beaten and mistreated, unjustly, at a minimum. Oh, but God, help us. Don't just let us settle for the minimum, for the low bar. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The problem with me wanting to talk back is that my heart is in rebellion. My heart wants to be in a position to oppose, to say, God, change our hearts. Don't steal. Some of your versions may have something like, don't pilfer. Don't take office supplies from work. Kids, if your parents tell you that you shouldn't be taking this snack or you shouldn't be taking advantage of this treat or this privilege, I would say that not pilfering means that you don't do what you've been told you can't take or do when your parents turn your back. That's pilfering. That's stealing. Some of you, no, 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 I'm sorry, some of us, some of us can sit rather comfortably on this and say, no problems there. There's really not anything at work that I would want to have anyway. Do you steal time? When there's an assignment that you have and you're, that you're supposed to be working on or you're supposed to be collaborating with some of your coworkers, are you on Facebook, Instagram? Twitter, YouTube, I'm sure there are other things out there that I'm losing track of. Do you steal time? Don't. That's not what a Christian employee does. 
Someone who follows Christ, who lived his life in such a way that he gave everything and took nothing, it does not make sense to say, we, on the other hand, are going to determine that there are some things that we're going to take whether we're owed it or not. You can't follow the ultimate giver and be a taker, a stealer, a theft. Be faithful. Show all good faithfulness. I think in part what this means is that you're going to be a, in the case of Paul's immediate context, these slaves ought to be faithful slaves, or if we want to say employees or young people with their parents, ought to be faithful employees, faithful children, meaning that when you talk about submitting to authority, when you talk about pleasing them in every respect, not talking back, not pilfering, that doesn't mean for a day. It means as a consistent pattern. You are faithful in the way that you conduct yourself under the authority of this other person. It comes to be that the more time you spend with that boss or that manager or supervisor, the more they come to see that you are unbelievably, uncommonly consistent in the way that you conduct yourself in the workplace. You become very reliable and dependable because you know the way that he responded to me yesterday is the way that he's going to respond today. The way that she handled that assignment three weeks ago is the way that she's going to take on that responsibility or that assignment next month. You're faithful. You are steady. You are rock solid. Your employer or your authority does not have to question what kind of action or conduct or response they're going to get out of you because you are faithful and dependable. Let me say a word to those of you young adults who may be early on in a career, or just now a teenager perhaps entering into the workplace for the first time, part-time, wherever you happen to be. If you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, you do not have the luxury, we do not have the luxury to allow the office culture to determine what the measure of our conduct will be. It does not matter if all of the other employees around you talk back to the boss. It does not matter if all of your coworkers get a free shot at this food or this snack or skim from the top or take this pen or take this item. It does not matter whether or not these other co-workers, your fellow workers, are wildly inconsistent. This is what God has called us to. We're not following the world. We're not following the patterns of this age. We're following the call and the example of Christ. It ought to look that way in the places where we work. It ought to sound that way in the way that we talk to our employers and the way that we interact with our coworkers. And if Christian employees, if Christian young adults, if Christian teenagers do not look and sound different in these basic components of our everyday life, something is not connecting in the things that we teach. Paul is talking to slaves and telling them, even if you have an abusive master, this is what is expected of you as a follower of Christ. The reason that these instructions are given come in verse 10. Here's why this kind of conduct and behavior is necessary even for those people who are slaves. Verse 10, in order that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. But look with me for a minute here. That 
Listen, one of the reasons why it's good to read Scripture over and over and over again is because we're thick-headed people. We don't notice things that we ought to notice the first, second, tenth, or twentieth time that we read. All right? So maybe the thirtieth or the fortieth time reading through this passage, all of a sudden, the Lord in His kindness struck me with this. Paul gives three statements in verses 1 through 10 where after he's given instructions, he says, and here's why this group of people ought to live this way. So the first one comes in chapter 2, verse 5. You see, at the, look at the end of verse 5. After talking to older and younger women, he says, they ought to live this way so that the Word of God will not be blasphemed. So that the Word of God that we speak and we teach would not be made disreputable. You see that? Then again down in verse 8, after addressing Titus and the young men, Paul says that we are to have speech which is beyond reproach, verse 8, in order that the opponent will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. Do you see in those first two, Paul is saying, we need to live this way so that bad things don't happen. We're wanting to keep this from happening. Here, in his address to slaves, he actually says, slaves need to live, live this way because this is something positive that it does. Slaves, you live this way with your masters no matter what they're like in order that, verse 10, you will adorn or beautify the doctrine of God our Savior. You understand that because Paul is addressing slaves, no one expects anything out of a slave. The bar is so low for a slave that if Paul would have just said, hey guys, don't steal from your masters, even that probably would have been an improvement from what went on in most Roman households who had slaves on the premises. Paul actually goes to a group of people who, for most, in most cases, would not have had high expectations. People would not have expected anything much out of them. And he says to some people who would have been on the lowest rung of the totem pole, he looks at them in the eyes and says, you ought to make the gospel look good. Not the boss, not the millionaire, not the person with prestige and power and position. You people who are used to be taken advantage of, you people who may be exploited and abused, you have the opportunity, perhaps in ways that no one else does, to beautify the Christian faith. Have you ever thought about the fact that when you enter into the workplace, when you enter into the classroom at college or school, when you're getting a trade under your belt, when you're interacting with your parents, that one of the things that God is looking to do with you, He wants you, even in your seemingly insignificant, weak position, to make the beauty of the gospel shine. Make our doctrine look good. But notice, in case you, you didn't know what that doctrine is, you get a little bit of a hint in the fact that he says that they are to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every way. You know why Christian slaves weren't to look like other slaves? Because God saved them out of that. You know why a Christian employee ought to look different than other employees? Because Christ bought your employment. He saved you out of the patterns and the habits of your old life. He set you free from the patterns and the philosophies and the ways that this world works. That's not what governs you anymore. You've been set free from that, and you have been freed to walk in the freedom and in the power of Jesus Christ. It ought to look that way when you go to work. And if it doesn't look that way, 
If you say, well, Mary, you don't understand what my job is like. You don't understand what it's like to work for my boss. You don't understand how difficult it is. That may, that may be. I, I wouldn't argue against that. But with all the love and the grace that I could muster, I would want to respond to you. Okay, I may not understand what it is that you're encountering in your workplace, but is it possible that you don't yet quite fully understand the saving power of Jesus Christ? Is it possible that as a follower of Christ, you have been led to believe that the way that you conduct yourself in all of these different working relationships is more or less governed or determined by what you can muster on your own. That's self-salvation. That is not God's salvation. Are you left thinking that the way that you respond to your employer, the way that you respond to your supervisor, your manager, your professor, your parent, is determined by what your mind thinks or how you feel? If so, you're forgetting that you have been given the mind of Christ. You're forgetting that the Holy Spirit indwells you and is giving you not the furthering fruit of the flesh, but the fruit of the Spirit. If Paul can give this kind of instruction to slaves, he can certainly give it to modern-day employees in the year 2022. And if Paul can say to slaves, this is what you're doing because you are acknowledging by your life that a power greater than anything that this world has seen has broken into this world order, has lifted you out of these old patterns and principles and precepts, has changed and transformed you. If he can say that to slaves, he ought to be heard saying that to us as well. Anytime we seek to make excuses for why we don't look like what Scripture teaches us to be, more often than not, it's because we are not looking at the power of Jesus Christ who's ruling and reigning on the throne. So we'll say again, if you're here and you're hearing, you're reading verses 9 and 10, and you're being, you feel like you're being pummeled, you're being beaten down because it's like, oh, I blew that. Yep, I didn't do that. Yep, no. And furthermore, I don't know that I'll ever do that. Listen, for every look that you give to yourself, you got to look 10 times at Jesus. You've got to claim, you've got to know that you have everything that you need for life and godliness in the promises of God through Jesus Christ by the power of His Holy Spirit. This, this is available to you. Not because you do it, not because you're going to generate it or manufacture it, but because God is the one who is at work in you to will and to do His good pleasure. And then we get to sing as we find that His pleasure is becoming our pleasure. I wonder what it would be like if Christians didn't just look and sound like Christians on Sunday morning, but if they looked and sounded and acted like Christians in their nine to five. Do you think something about the Christian faith, even if, even if someone didn't subscribe to it, you think they would at least have to take note of the fact that those Christians are just a different breed of people? They might believe weird and strange stuff, but man, I tell you, if I could hire a dozen more, I'd take them in a heartbeat. Our faith our devotion to Jesus Christ ought to make us more attractive in the workplace, not less attractive. Let's pray. Father, we praise You that in Your redemption,
in buying us out of our sin and depravity, that not only did your son offer himself up as the payment for that redemption to set us free from the penalty of our sin, but to set us free even from the power of sin and to give us a new power through your Holy Spirit who indwells us that changes not merely the way that we interact with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, but it changes every aspect, every avenue of our lives, whether, as, whether it's when we gather together on a Sunday morning or when we go our separate ways into the workplace. Father, I ask that you would continue to shape and mold us into the image of Christ so that if it comes to suffering, if it comes to being treated unjustly, it would not be due to any wrong or any offense that we have given or created. Help us, Father, to live with the grace and humility of Jesus Christ and to entrust ourselves into the hands of a faithful Creator to do what is right. Father, help us to remember that You have not left us alone to follow Your commands, to obey, to put Your instructions into practice, but that You have given us Your power in Your Spirit to transform us and to give us the ability to do what You have first commanded us to do. We thank You and we praise You for a complete and total salvation in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and worship as we close. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. Your buried body began to breathe. Would you sing it out? Out of the silence, the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me. Jesus salvation in your name Jesus Christ my living you sing it out hallelujah hallelujah praise the one who set me free hallelujah death has lost its grip on me you have broken every chain there's salvation in your name Jesus Christ, my living hope. Jesus Christ, my living hope. God, you are my living hope. Amen. You're dismissed.